0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I had Solomon athlete Leah Yingling back on the show for another edition of Running Through the News, our monthly roundup of all the latest happenings in the running world. Leah caught me up on how her training for Western States is going after she nabbed a golden ticket at the Canyons 100K earlier this year. And then we jumped into a very fun and very wide-ranging conversation about everything from Killian Jornet's new brand, Normal, to the rise in popularity of 200-mile races and why women are absolutely crushing them, to whether or not Tom Cruise is actually any good at running. And before that, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. And so let's go ahead and run through the news with Leah Yingling. All right, Leah, thanks for coming back on for another edition of uh, running through the news with me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to catch up and chat about what's been going on in the shell running world.
0: Yeah, there's a lot has transpired since the last time we talked. Um, and we'll get into all that stuff. But I think first, I want to uh, do some catch up with you because a lot has transpired since the last time you came on.
1: Yeah, there, a lot has transpired. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar, I'm uh Leah Yingling, and I live in Salt Lake City, and I run for Solomon. Uh, And recently, I ran the Canyons 100K in April, which was the last golden ticket race for Western States. Um, This year was interesting. They offered three golden tickets at this race because of the cancellation of Tarawera earlier in the year. So three tickets were offered at both Black Canyon and Canyons this year. So um, I had a fun race for one of those.
0: Yeah. So walk me through that, that day a little bit, because I know we talked about your buildup for it in the last episode, and I think you kind of executed it perfectly by my uh, uh, estimation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, so the Canyons 100k is a net uphill 100k race with, I think, close to 14 to 15,000 feet of elevation gain. And it runs um, in portions backwards on the Western States course. Um, so the Western States course is actually significantly downhill, which results in Canyons 100K being significantly uphill. And um, I went for a golden ticket race earlier this year um, at the Andara 100K. And I fell a little bit short getting third place there. And they were only giving out two golden tickets there. So Canyons was um, kind of my the final shot I was giving myself and a race that I tend to like a little bit more because it uh, plays to my strengths a little bit more than something as runnable as Bandera does. Um, So I ran it in 2021, which was the first edition of this new course that they um, issued. It used to be um, you started in Forest Hill and you did two separate out and backs to equal up to 100K. And they kept the COVID 2021 course um, of the net uphill, which was really fun. Um, and what makes this extremely challenging, I think, is it's actually there's some punchy vert early in the race, um, but a lot of the uphill comes in the last ten to fifteen miles after you go through Michigan Bluff. So I think the last ten miles even has a little over three thousand feet of climbing. Um, so you definitely need to keep yourself in check until that point. Yeah, so going into the race, I uh, had a goal of running pretty conservatively until I hit that mile fifty point and just seeing what I had from fifty onwards. So I think, Early in the day, I was sitting in about 12th place. And then by mile 50, I'd moved myself up to, I f- think, fifth or sixth place. And it wasn't until the last uh, last mile and a half is when I moved into second place, but um, moved into a golden ticket position somewhere around like mile 55 or 56. So I think in my mind, it was a perfectly executed day as well. Um, Jasmine Lothar, who is a Canadian, she just absolutely slaughtered the course on the women's side, um, running one second under Beth Pascal's uh, course record from last year. So she just had an incredible day and was pretty untouchable from the start. So I think my race was more for that second and third place and golden ticket position. But it made for an awesome day. There was a ton of amazing women out there. Um, Brittany Peterson, Anna Mae Flynn, Laudia Albertson-Junkins, uh, Sarah Beale from Ohio, who ran an exceptional race. So it was really cool to see how people from uh, kind of different corners of the U.S. and I guess uh, North America. Too, um, kind of put together different styles of training and came out to canyons and most everybody had a pretty great day and it was fun to, uh, line up next to a lot of those women.
0: Yeah. Jasmine has a pretty cool story too, because she's relatively like new to trail running, I think. Right.
1: Yeah. She hasn't been in the sport a long time. I know she's definitely a multi-sport athlete. I follow her on Strava now and she's a really fun follow because she, she bikes, she skis, she runs, she hikes, she does a little bit of everything. Um, and she had a pretty big breakout race, I would say, at Chakadet this year where she was in third place in a really stacked field. Um, and so she was talking a little bit about how she felt like she was a dark horse coming into canyons. But she was definitely on my radar. I was telling a couple of my friends, I was like, she's the one that nobody's talking about. And she definitely proved that. It was just an incredible race from her from start to finish. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to see what she does in the future because I still think she's um, not sponsored by anybody. and I'm curious if anybody we'll pick her up after Canyons.
0: She claimed her ticket, right, to Western States.
1: She did. Unfortunately, she's been dealing with a little nerve issue um, in her foot since then. So I don't think she's going to make it to the start line of Western States, unfortunately. But she took her ticket. And I I think what's a pretty funny story, too, is when she took her ticket, she thought it was for Western States 2023. And then um, I think somebody informed her, no, it's in two months. Um, which she still took the ticket anyhow, but I find, I was like, oh, that'd be a rude awakening.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, I have to run. How far? When? <laughs>
1: yeah, in two months. <laughs> well,
0: so let's talk about Western States because you you claimed your ticket as well, and I, I know like that was uh, a huge goal of yours this year. Um, so, how have you been going about your approach to training for uh, for the Western States one hundred?
1: Yeah, so I think canyons poses an interesting challenge for those people who are then running Western States, it's close in time. So it's about, I think this year, seven weeks separate the two, maybe eight. Um, so you either see people nail it or kind of fail a little miserably in this transition from canyons to Western States. And my goal is to hopefully not fail miserably because I think there's a lot of important pieces of the puzzle that can really still be laid down in um, in those seven and eight weeks. So. Last year, Beth Pascal went from winning uh, Canyons to winning Western States. Um, but I've had a couple of friends, Jimmy Elam and Anthony Castalis, in the past get golden tickets at Canyons and not be able to show up at the Western States start line due to injury. So I think you really skate this fine line of doing too much in this period can really hinder you from getting to the start line healthy. Um, so I've been trending more on the like doing what's comfortable, doing what's worked for me in the past and trying not to focus too much on, you know, the big mileage that everybody else is putting in and just doing like what feels good and what feels comfortable right now. So yeah, after canyons, I took a down week and then kind of just got back into things in like a little comfy, you know, 50 to 60 mile range, which is normally where I stay. And then this past weekend I was out at um, the Western States training camp for what was probably my biggest week since canyons. Um, You do in three days, you do 70 miles on the Western States course um, so right there, that was already more mileage than I've put in since uh canyons uh it's a great weekend where you get to preview a lot of course and we could chat a little bit more about that um but then, after that week, this week, i'll do another week that' was similar in mileage, probably somewhere in the eighty to ninety range, and then just start tapering off after that and starting to do some heat training and whatnot but yeah the main goal is just staying healthy it's uh definitely a challenge whenever your bodies run a hundred k and then my bodies run hundred k twice this year, and then a bunch of other races. So I just need to need to focus on the recovery and still have fun with it.
0: Yeah, it's been fun to see how different athletes are approaching Western States. I know, on the men's side, I've seen some weeks that are, you know, pushing like 160 miles yeah. with like 2025k kvert. And yeah, I don't know, I am sure that like, you know, running you get better at running by running more, but I think there's like a point of diminishing returns. I'm not a coach, but uh yeah i think I think what you're doing seems uh seems maybe a little bit a little bit smarter in certain respects.
1: yeah, it's fun like I'm really curious to see after western states like looking at how everybody trained because like you said, people are training really differently um there's I know the guy, Trueheart Brown, who got a ticket at um Black Canyon he's doing pretty unconventional training where he's biking almost more than he's running and then there's runners um one of my favorite ones to follow right now is Arlen Glick he, um he's from Ohio I want to say but he's from the Midwest at least and his training is wild he um I actually pulled up a Strava just this morning and I think last week he put in um well he was at the Western States training camp and put in I think 150 some miles with like 30,000 feet of climbing um and that's not like he's done that before, and he's done that, I think, a time or two in his training. So you see people at that end of the spectrum and people at the other end of the spectrum. So I'm really curious to see how everybody does end up putting it together and kind of how it plays out for them. Um, yeah, because I think like Katie Asmuth, for example, who got fifth place at Western States last year, She she's a pretty conservative runner as well. She has very similar training to mine, kind of just staying in that 60-mile zone most of the time. and then peaking a little bit um, when it comes close to a race. And I think different things work for different people. And I think Western states doesn't necessarily play out for the fittest person, but it might play out for how everything really comes together with your training, your heat mitigation, and then nutrition and whatnot. So I think uh, it's an interesting course for um, for those reasons.
0: Right. And like, you know, running super high mileage works for people, too. Mm-hmm. So, exactly, y- you know, you can't really call them out for it if they're no. if they're on the podium.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about Western States training camp, because it's kind of unique to that race and acts as in some ways a, a dress rehearsal for for the big dance. What did you take away from your time on the course over Memorial Day weekend?
1: Man, it is so downhill. Um, so we start the, so it's three days, and the first day you do from Robinson Flat to, um, to Forest Hill. And then the second day you do Forest Hill to the river, um, which is about 18 miles. So our first day is 32 miles, second day is 18 miles, and then your last day is from Green Gate to the finish, which is about 22 miles. So you cover just over 70 miles, and you don't get to see the first 50K, which is the part like starts in Olympic Valley. Um, and actually is like the more rugged f- first 50K of the course. So that's when you're in what they call the high country. So it's pretty rugged. It's high altitude. And I think it historically beats a lot of people up before you even get to all the runnable stuff. But my biggest takeaway was I've heard that it's downhill, significantly downhill, but it's, it was way more than I even imagined. Um, so I run, I run a decent amount of my training regularly. Um, And man, I was just like, where is the uphill? (laughs) Um, So that, I mean, it was just nice to see that. I was telling my husband, Mike, that like, if anything, it was a great experience, but you can't even, you need to experience that either on race day or like before race day to really know how downhill it is. And I think in my eyes, it was like how easy it would be to get carried away on that section, um, on all those sections that are significantly downhill because it's really runnable um, and mostly rolling runnable from, about 80 miles to the finish, which I think a lot of people show up there a little beat up usually. So I think if you can have legs on that section, you can really close some time um, because I think a lot of people aren't able to run as well as they probably like on that section. So that was great to see. Um, Something else, like I, I had never gone to the Memorial Day training camp, but it's open to everybody, whoever wants to register can. And it was just an amazing experience with so much energy. And I think it was a great, precursor to all the hype that will be Western states. I mean, you get shuttled every day and you get meals at the finish and everything. And you just get to run with tons of people that you might not otherwise get to run with in a race and hang out, get to know them. Like a lot of the elite guys that were there were, you know, running back with the women's pack. You have people who are like might have been running a little bit late that day and they started in the back of the pack and got to chat with runners from the back of the pack all the way to the front of the pack. So I think it's just a really low key Chill way to experience the course and meet a lot of people as well in a kind of less stressful environment than it will be uh, the week of June 25th.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I love about the sport too. Is like you can kind of just hang out with your competition, you mm-hmm. know, and, <laughs> and share some miles. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that's really seen in a lot of other sports. You know, there's. I think a lot of other competitive sports take themselves a little bit too seriously sometimes, but
1: yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, nice just to like hang out with everybody. We had a good group of people on the women's side, Marianne Hogan, um, Katie Asmith, Casey Lifty, Camille, um, Alison Baca, Zoe Rom and a couple others. And it was just, I knew a couple of them, but also it's like, I'd been friends with a lot on social media, but never actually met them in person. So that was great because, I mean, it's hard to not get to know somebody extremely well when you're running 32 miles and five hours plus with them on day one. So you become like best friends with people on the first day and then you just get to hang out with them the rest of the time. So it's a really cool experience. And yeah, like you said, I really do like uh, ultra running for that reason.
0: Cool. Um, So before we move into some current events, I wanna ask you about what you're doing for heat training because I've heard of people do, all sorts of things. I know some people go out for runs in the middle of the day wearing like trash bags and stuff. <laughs> uh, and I know saunas and really hot baths after runs are popular. Uh, what is kind of guiding your approach to dealing with the heat that is so customary to Western states?
1: Yeah, I'm going to mostly focus on uh, the sauna. The saunas, uh, we um, belong to our rec center that's about a mile away. And we have a sauna there, and it's just really a t- attainable and approachable for us so I'm gonna focus mostly on that and probably this week is right when I'm going to start doing most of that I think usually like three three to four weeks out is usually um, prime time for starting a heat training so I'll get, I'm going to try to go every day for 30 minutes or so post post run ideally if it's not post run that's also okay um, but just getting used to that adaptation um, I'm also going to try to do a couple of my last long runs in the middle of the day um i don't typically enjoy the heat too much so it's just about changing the mindset and recognizing that everybody has to go through it um i also think i'm going to do a lot of different things come race day um to keep me cool so hopefully combining all those things would will be helpful and honestly i mean people were saying it was kind of unfortunate this past weekend that we had such nice weather but the weather was amazing at training camp, it was glorious. And they're like, oh, man, I wish it was hot for you guys. I'm, like, I'm kind of good.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I, I know what heat feels like. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't need to experience it today. I'm good. I'm good. I think wait oh, till race man. day. Um, yeah. Yeah, so going to start doing some of those things. Um, yeah, I think everybody has a little bit of a different approach. But sauna seems to be pretty efficient, too, which I like.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's wild that, you know, the race is four weeks away, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nuts. less than that
0: sneaking up on us. <laughs> I know. Ugh. Cool. Uh, why don't we transition into um, some current events? Why don't we start with, I mean, Zagama, which just happened, I think on Saturday, right?
1: Yeah, that was really exciting to follow. Um, I think there were some really interesting storylines from Zagama that played out.
0: Yeah. So Zagama is a Pretty notorious race that happens in Spain every year, although the past two iterations had been canceled because of COVID. And that makes a lot of sense because Zagama is known for its crowds. Like, I think there's something like 15,000 spectators that come out each year and just pile onto the race course and form like human tunnels around the runners, which is, if you haven't seen it, there's some really good clips on the internet. It's, it's quite the spectacle. And like, I can't imagine not trying to run as fast as you can with like that much kind of like buoyancy.
1: I I, I can't imagine. And I think the kind of like byline for the race is Zagama is Zagama. And I think that just like speaks for it in itself. Like you have to experience Zagama to really know what it's like.
0: Yeah. So it's a marathon distance and I think around 9K avert. So, uh, yeah, not a lot of room for, uh, for flat running in that one. Um, but on the men's side, uh, Killian Jornet dominated again. Um, he led for, I think like after about 14 miles into the race and won by about four minutes and Broke the the previous course record by nine. And oh uh, yeah, he's just like, he's back, you know?
1: Oh, it's just insane. Like he has gone out there. Wait, I think this is his 10th win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is just wild. Like he's so consistent. And the fact that he does this in a fast race, this isn't like, you know, a long 100 mile. This is fast with like young and up and comers who have been doing incredible things. And he runs with them for a little bit and then, drops a hammer and just goes and break breaks a course record by nine minutes in a race that's been historically competitive for years. It's just really, really impressive.
0: Yeah. This field was super deep on, on both sides too. I think I read something, uh, on Max King's Instagram earlier today that talked about how like he snuck under four hours and forget what place he finished in, but I think... Yeah, he was
1: 16th, I want to say. Yeah.
0: And in like 2018, or the last time the race was won, that would have been good for like top five.
1: Which is amazing. Oh my God.
0: Yeah. But I think we should stay on Killian for a sec, because I think last time we talked, he hadn't announced his like next project yet, because he had left Solomon, his main sponsor for what feels like forever. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But he did. He announced that he was partnering with the Spanish footwear brand Camper, uh, which is pretty huge over there to uh pioneer a new brand called normal. I think that's how you pronounce it. There's Yeah, I think so. Two ends at the
1: beginning of
0: it. I've I've heard people joke that it's called the normal, but I I don't think (laughs) they do that. that. (laughs) Yeah. But it seems super interesting. I mean it's it's designed to be environmentally friendly, like high performance footwear and apparel. And Killian, if you followed him throughout his career, is like very specific and detail oriented when it comes to his training and his gear. So I can't really, you know, put holes in in any of his products yet because they're performing well for him, right? Well,
1: exactly. And that's what a lot of people were saying. It was like, well, here's the proof you need that, you know, it didn't slow Killian down. He broke a course record and he's doing what Killian does. So it's maybe not necessarily the products that make the difference and maybe they are making a difference. Who knows? But yeah, it was an interesting um, transition. And I think his wife, Emily Forsberg, also made the jump as well from Solomon uh, to their brand. And I know there was um, some talk about, oh, it's interesting because they're they're taking a really big environmentally focused um, approach with normal, Um, so trying to focus on this overconsumption um, and kind of opposing that capitalistic approach. But somebody made the argument, I was like, well, is making a new brand, really the way to go about doing that. Um, but I know they they have their pretty valid arguments, uh, kind of backing up what they're doing and thinking more uh, of a long term approach here.
0: Yeah, and I think that was my my reaction to it at first. But uh, I think if the brand is does become super successful, it'll definitely steer more attention towards climate change and um, you know environmental action. So I think that that has the potential to outweigh any of the um, yeah, like waste byproducts of, of creating a new, a new brand. Um, and I know Dakota Jones jumped on board too. So, uh, yeah. And
1: he's a big advocate, um, for the environment. And I think he's even working in his, on his master's degree right now, um, focusing on those things as well. Uh, so it's really cool. He also jumped from Solomon over there and he ended up finishing, I think in 11th place and had a really solid race as well. Um, So yeah, cool to see that. I think he was the top placing American too for the men.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking at the results and the only American to finish in the top 10 was Courtney DeWalter on the women's side. She came in 10th, which was honestly like the most surprising result that I saw because that's typically not Courtney's best distance.
1: No, I was amazed. Um, Man, it just goes to show like how solid she is. You know, I didn't really foresee her being in the top five, but Cracking the top ten was oh man, that was just incredible, and it's what what can't Courtney do?
0: Yeah. So, do you want to uh, walk us through a little bit of what took place on the women's side?
1: Yeah. So this was a fun race to follow. I don't know if you do any of the free trail uh, fantasy team making for any of these races, um, but I was really pumped for this race because I predicted the women's podium. Perfect.
0: You did? Wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, podium being top three. I didn't do top five, but I was pretty so, pumped with my that's, top three. <laughs> yeah. That's impressive. Um, yeah, so I I don't want to butcher her name, but Minka Brinkman. Yeah. Um she got first place in a new course record and she crushed it. So she I she's been doing amazing things. Um, and I think she has a really interesting um storyline as well because I I'd like to see Her story I kind of applied across across the different countries and kind of see where that can push trail running. So she's a 2:22 marathoner and um, she just what what country is she from again?
0: I think she's Swedish, but she lives in Norway, I believe.
1: Okay, yeah, and I think she set the her country's course record or country's record for the marathon um, just a month or two ago, running a 2:22. So to put that into perspective, that's like one of our American marathoners, like Sarah Hall, for example, coming over to the trails and running Zagama and winning and crushing everybody in the process. Uh so she's just incredible and she runs for Nike Trail. And I just I'm curious to see where where she can take her road speed and trail speed, because I mean, this was just a breakout race, and I think that um Maud Mathis, who is typically at the top of the podium in a lot of these races. I mean, she ran away from her, and that's incredible to see. So we had um, Ninka one for the women, and then we had Maud Mathis in second. And then um, a young and up-and-comer, uh, Sarah Alonso, who runs for Solomon. Um, and she lives in Spain. She was third place and just had an incredible race as well. I saw her run at Trans Grand Canaria this year in the marathon. And her down – you should – watch some of the YouTube videos of her running downhill because, oh my God, it's terrifying and amazing all at the same time.
0: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Going back to N'ke, um, I did some research on her because I was like, who I like, you know, I hadn't heard her name before. And apparently she started running during the pandemic. Like she's a pandemic runner. Yeah. Prior to that, she played field hockey. And then I think started running when she was getting um, her master's uh, degree. But yeah, like 28 years old, super, super fast. And what I think is really cool is that she's like fully stoked on doing both balancing road and trail. Whereas I think some some people with like, you know, that kind of leg speed are driven like one way or the other. Um, I know she's running another marathon this year, as well as uh, the Pikes Peak Ascent and the Flagstaff uh, sky peaks, both of which are stateside. So yeah, if you live in either of those areas, I think it'd be worth, uh, making the trip out to see, to see her crush.
1: Yeah. That's going to be terrifying. I, it's interesting too, because like in the U S on the women's side, at least the only person we can speak of who's even like similar in this respect is, um, Grayson Murphy. But even so, like, I mean, she does the steeplechase does a lot of track stuff and also runs on the roads, but, um, we've never seen any of our marathoners coming over and doing similar things. So yeah, just imagine, man, oh, it'd be cool to see.
0: Yeah. I I think, I imagine that there, there there definitely is some translation like back and forth, but yeah, you're right. No one's really nailed it.
1: Mm -mm. And like run as fast as she has in the marathon or same with the men's side. That would be like one of our really elite caliber men's marathoners coming over. Um, We see that with like, yeah, you know, like decent, and like Olympic trials qualifier um, marathon times, like we get a lot of those guys and women. But yeah yeah, pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean Ryan Hall has run an ultra recent <laughs> or within the last year, uh, which is in the cool grand to see. Traverse. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Man, okay, let's move into something that I have been following a little bit uh, more closely this year, which is kind of like the rise of 200 mile races and 200 mile plus races. Because it, it does seem like a, an interesting kind of phenomenon in our sport and an interesting direction, I should, I should say. Um, so this year, Cocodona 250 took place about a month ago, I believe. Um, and that had some really interesting results. And while I do want to spend some time breaking those down, I'm more curious about like what you think this... Uh, the popularity of 200 plus mile races says about like maybe the direction ultra running's headed?
1: Yeah, I'm curious about this one um, because 200 miles is far. Uh, And I think, I mean, I've run 100 miles and I'm one of those people that says, oh man, I will never do a 200 miler uh, just because it honestly seems like an entirely different ball game compared to 100 milers um, for a variety of reasons. The one element is sleep. Um, That just becomes such a component. Another element is just the managing of potential issues, um, specifically like your feet, your nutrition, things like that. Another thing is, yeah, how do you fuel these adventures? And your crew starts to become a much more crucial element of your race. And like, I mean, they are making a serious commitment to support you in these races. So I'm really interested to see where the 200 milers go. I think right now they're attracting a very niche population. Of sorts, and they haven't to date attracted a ton of the top level elite runners. I think I would say Coca Donut probably was attracted one of the more competitive elite fields that we've seen in these 200 mile events. Um, but I personally have a hard time believing that we'll see these races get really elitely competitive in the coming years. Maybe they will, um, but I just think it's they do a lot to your body. Um, and I wonder. If I were like an elite runner running one of these events, would I want to commit myself to an event like this, knowing that my recovery will take probably exceptionally longer and the probability of causing an issue is probably a little bit higher than in your typical 100 mile event. Um, So I'm curious to see where they go um, and how much they will rise over, let's say, the next decade. But I wonder from an elite runner perspective, if that's some of the considerations that some might be keeping in mind considering we haven't seen a lot of them transition over yet
0: yeah I agree with that um, I just think that the sleep deprivation like uh, man I, I can I've not slept for quite a while but going 70 80 90 hours without sleep like can't be great for your brain
1: no and um, I think if you will chat a little bit about um, the winners and the podium and whatnot of this event but um, I know the winner on the men's side, he had an Instagram post about, I think he got less than an hour of sleep the entire time. Um, I think it calculated down to like 58 minutes total for a, 60 hours. That is wild. And then if you consider some of these back of the Packers who are running for the full, I don't know what the cutoff was. I think it was probably five ish days, six days. Maybe. Yeah, I think
0: it was like 120 hours or something like that. I don't know. Mm, something wow. like
1: that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Then imagine like, the sleep like say some of them are pretty sleep deprived for that amount of time it is it's honestly a different sport um and it's it's intriguing me because i am very curious to see where it goes because we have we have a handful of these 200 milers in the u.s um but yeah it's a they're they're a commitment
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it seems like you (laughs) maybe a better approach would just be turning these into stage races
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs)
0: um But
1: sleep.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so the two winners, what's interesting is that they both are accomplished ultra runners at shorter distances too. Um Joe McConaughey, string bean, as he's affectionately called in the through hiking community, uh, was the first male to finish under 60 hours for Cocadona which is wild. Um, he came in first place. And then on the women's side, Annie Hughes dominated again. Um she's 24 years old. She won Leadville last year and also won the Moab 240 last October and I think she she led from essentially wire to wire and finished in like 71 hours, which mm-hmm. is absurd.
1: Um oh, she's it's, crushing it's it. Yeah, uh so I know this year at the race I was watching something last night. They did reroute a little bit from the original Kokopelli course due to wildfires. Um, along the, I think it was around mile 60 to 65 or so on the course. So I think it made the course a little bit faster this year um, than in, pri- in prior years. But regardless, um, Joe running six under 60 hours and Annie running 71 hours is just incredible. And I think, yeah, this brings up a great point is that like something I've thought a lot about is like, are these people running 200 milers just doing well because like nobody's really challenging them. So like, let's talk about Mike McKnight for a second. Like he's been known to be pretty successful at this 200 mile distance. Um, he ended up getting second place in this race. But an argument I've always had is like, could people compete with him and we're just not seeing elite runners coming to this stage. And I think this race was really cool because these are elite runners as well who have succeeded across multiple distances. Like I think Andy Hughes and Joe too, Both they both ran in college as well, um, collegiately. And Joe this year, like he went to many of the golden ticket races and fell slightly short from a golden ticket in at least two races. Um, so, you know that they're competing at the highest level right now in the United States. So it's really cool to see um, what that lake speed can bring to the 200 mile distance.
0: Yeah. And then you look at Joe's accomplishments over the 250 mile mark with his like efforts through hiking like he has gone after the FKT on both the Appalach- Appalachian Trail as well as the Pacific Crest Trail and I think held both for a short time I might be wrong on that but uh yeah that guy just is his range is phenomenal and I, I'd love to talk to him at some point to kind of like figure out if he pulls from any of his like through hiking when he's running shorter distances. Cause that's as a through hiker myself, I've, I've thought about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is an interesting tidbit about him. I was, uh, I think I've listened to a podcast. He was on or watched a, a little video on him, but a, you should see him running in any miles during the, and during coca cause he is moving. Like he was moving super fast and well for somebody that had run 200 miles. Um, But we talked a little bit bit about the challenge that nutrition presents in these longer races, and I don't think he is capable of burping, Um, which I've had a couple friends who have had a similar issue in Ultra. So I had two other friends. I don't know how there's so many of of these people that exist in the world. But um, this poses really interesting challenges, and my two friends that have this issue have not been able to really have great success beyond 50 miles because of what, what these issues end up becoming later in the races, but, um, he was talking about how he even like manages something like that. So like some, all these little things that start coming into play in these 200 mile races and the things that the ways that you learn of dealing with them to like keep moving forward. It's just incredible. And I can't imagine just like the little things that could become gigantic problems, um, when you're running for 60 hours.
0: Something else I thought about a little bit when I was kind of going through, uh, results across these 200 mile, 200 mile plus races is how it seems like the gap between men and women finish times is a lot more marginal than it is in maybe like hundred milers. And that led me down the rabbit hole of like doing a bit more reading on like why that is and like, what about like female anatomy or like physiology allows them to really like close that gap over those long distances. So I read a great article that, uh, Corinne Malcolm put together that kind of spoke to that. And she essentially, well, she avoided coming to any conclusions because I think there's still a lot more research, um, that needs to be done, but she hypothesized that, uh, women are, Outperform men over like extremely long distances, partially because they have uh, greater uh, fatigue resistance due to the types of like muscle fibers uh, they have, as well as like greater efficiency in using fat as fuel, um, which I thought was really interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think if you were following along with Coccodona at all, um, I think Annie Hughes. So she ended up finishing third overall. She might have been in the overall lead early on for a while. I think her and Jason Coop were running together um, up there. And like Joe was kind of behind them at least for maybe 350 k or something. But then if you look back to past results, um, Courtney Dwalter won outright uh, the Moab 200 a couple of years back and like crushed everybody. Um, so that was, I think, the first time this was really put on our radar. And it's like, yeah, Courtney is an outlier in many senses, but it just started to make you think like, hey, as these distances get longer, um, women have a competitive advantage of sorts. um, And why is that? And I think those reasons that you bring up are uh, interesting. Another thing that I've read about in the past is women's ability to be more even pacers along the course of events like these tends to um, help them succeed a little bit more as well. So I think, I mean, this is just completely uh, my, my opinion, but I do think women in races tend to let their ego get in the way a little bit less than men do. So typically end up pacing races a little bit better. And I'd be curious about DNF rates of women versus men and percentages and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I think when it gets to 200s, it's, uh, women start to really, um, be more competitive with men than we've seen it, especially the shorter distances.
0: Yeah. I think that's just, I don't know. I, I really want more research to be done. Uh, in that area, because it is really fascinating to me. And I think the results at Western States last year would su- support your hypothesis. Oh,
1: so cool. What was that? I think it was uh, 21 women in the top 40 or something. I oh, mean, it was so cool, though. Uh, yeah. We did awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. Cool. Um, sweet. So, why don't we move on to? few more topical stuff we got going on. Um, quickly, I do want to give a shout out to a project that I've been following pretty closely that I think could use a bit more attention. Uh, so in the Eastern Sierra, I guess the the Sierra, um, there are 247 named peaks. And I don't exactly know the history of like when that became like a fastest known time project to climb all of those. Um, but this year two two guys, Nathan Longhurst and Travis stores are going after the FKT, um, to climb all 247 Sierra peaks, um, in that range. And it's, it, it's a monumental, uh, effort that they're putting together. I think, they started a hundred days ago, so when all of those, when all of that area was really blanketed in snow, and they ended up backcountry skiing up a ton of these peaks. So uh, Nathan is a little bit ahead. As of recording, he's climbed 157 out of 247 peaks. Yeah, as I said, in just 102 days, um, and a lot of these peaks require, you know, 20, 30 mile approaches and fifth-class scrambling. So you really need to be a super well-rounded athlete for that, Um, not only having endurance, but also, yeah, like the technical prowess um, to climb up uh, some pretty gnarly terrain. But they're doing this all in an attempt to raise money for the Bishop Paiute Tribe um, Food Sovereignty Program, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, So we'll put a link to their website in the show notes because uh, they also have a really interactive way to follow them and support them. Um, So shout out to those guys.
1: That's really amazing. Are they, um, I'm a little unfamiliar with this. Are they competing with each other against each other for this FKT or is it kind of like an individual effort on both parts and like who can do it first?
0: I don't know if there's a lot of competition. I think Mm -hmm. it's like, um, yeah, I think Nathan just has a bit, maybe a bit more time. Um, (laughs) and, and, uh, I think this project is so long that it helps to have a friend and just for safety reasons too, I think absolutely. But he's, I, I think he's like super young. He might be 22, 24 years old. Um, so it's, it'll be really cool to see, um, some of his future projects for sure.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely incredible.
0: Is there anything else that you, uh, you've been following closely?
1: Oh, let me see here. I know that there is, um, I have a good friend on the East coast, uh, Rachel Lemke. She just, uh, took, uh, the FKT in the, um, what is it? The scar. So it's the, uh, traverse of the Smokies. Um, Smoky Challenge, uh, but uh, it's a really, really rugged 70 um, ish mile uh, route that goes across the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Um, so that's been a fun one that um, my friend Liz Canty and uh, Liz Durstein held the FKTs, and they're both uh, pretty well known in the ultra running world and then also in the um, through hiking world. So it was cool to see them like all very friendly competition, uh, kind of year after year that goes down a little bit more. So shout out to her for doing that because I think that's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, that's, man, that's cool. I love when the, the through hiking community, uh, and the ultra running community kind of, uh, collaborate.
1: Um, Yeah, it's really neat. So I think there's like, there's a lot of, um, a lot of things you can bring over from through hiking. And I think we've seen a lot of success in the ultra running world. Once these, uh, athletes can come over, oh, there's another one actually. And it follows that same, uh, line of thinking is, uh, there's a new women's, uh, self-supported Arizona trail, FKT. And it was um, by my good friend, Katie Wilderness Brown. Wilderness is her through hiking name. And uh, this was probably about two weeks ago. And she went for an attempt, I think, two years ago and was stopped by snow, really significant snow early on. Because the Arizona Trail, you don't have a huge window for it because the higher uh, elevation terrain Gets really covered in snow um, for a significant portion of the spring, but then you also have to weigh the high temperatures when you're in the lower elevation. Um, So you don't have a long time to do it. And I think um, she finished in 17 hours or so. I mean, 17 days, I'm sorry. Not 17 hours, that'd be incredible. 17 days or so. um, And the Arizona Trail is, I think, a little over 800 miles. So it's really cool to see her attempt it once, have some challenges, go back a second time. um, And you know, face some of those challenges, but also um, maybe find a window of time that worked a little bit better for her. And she's incredible, too, because she's been an ICU nurse um, through all of the COVID pandemic and talks a lot on social media, especially about the trials and tribulations of doing that. So it's cool to see her get some mental health time to herself out on the trail and then accomplish a huge goal um, in doing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the mental fortitude it takes to approach that thing twice you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's not like you're, you need to run another like rep of your workout. It's like, no, I'm going to be out here for
1: <laughs> exactly, for, exactly. M- for
0: like half, half a month. All right. I want to move into uh, a few things that I've been reading that I found funny, um, or not funny, but, uh, funny and inspiring, I guess. Um, the first is an article, a profile I read of, uh, Joe Gray in the New York times which I think uh, was pretty cool to see in a publication like that. Um, Joe Gray is, like, inarguably the most decorated U.S. mountain runner of all time. He's a 20-time national champ across six different disciplines, and he's been named uh, to the U.S. mountain running team, I think, like, 33 times um, over 14 years. And he happens to be African American. And, yeah, that's that puts them in a minority in our sport. So this article did a really good job of interviewing him and, and kind of hearing what he had to say about trying to make our sport more inclusive because that's a, a huge issue and, and something that, that we need to, to do a better job of. Um, and he pointed out that the media kind of controls the narrative. And if we can get these like leaders in the media to really highlight people of color, um, that'll go a long way in like, shifting how... Uh, people of color are seen in our sport. So I'd highly recommend that read. Um it was written by Andy Cochran who is uh yeah a great photographer and writer. Um so that's in the in the New York Times and we'll we'll link to that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's a really interesting um he had a couple of really great quotes in the article in the interview. Um and if you wouldn't mind if I sh- shared a couple of them. He was he said in one um after one question, he said, winning races wasn't enough to change the sport. I needed to share my experience with others. For a long time, I worried about losing sponsorship, which was scary because it was my livelihood. These people had influence over my career. And in the past, it was in the best interest for my family to keep my mouth shut. And man, how powerful when you think about it, that, you know, talking about something like race, which is, you know, central to who he is as a person, felt like something he had to keep his mouth shut about because he feared he would lose a sponsorship. Um, I think it's really great seeing people be vocal uh, about issues like this. And I have um, a good friend who represents um, a pop- like the LGBTQ population in ultra running and trail running. And he's made a great push with his sponsors recently. Like he will not take a sponsor unless he, they will support him in many ways in increasing um, the inclusion of LGBTQ population in the sport. So, and I think Joe's been doing something phenomenal too. It's like, okay, like, I don't care if this means anything for my sponsor, like, they better be supporting me in this. And I think he's just a great voice for having more inclusion in the sport. And
0: also just a really humble and thoughtful guy. Um, Mm -hmm. It'll, it's really cool to see him kind of at the pinnacle of that um, part of our sport for so long. I mean, you know, he's, he's almost undefeated, right?
1: Oh, every single time there's a U.S. mountain running championship, you don't even need to look at the start list to know who won that race.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's always
1: Joe Gray followed by Andy Wacker.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yep. Okay. Before we get out of here, Leah, I have to ask you, have you seen the new Top Gun yet?
1: I have not. However, I have two sisters in the military who would be sad to hear that I said this. My sister went to like the premiere in San Diego for it. Um, as a military sponsored event. So I unfortunately have not, but I've heard good things. <laughs> but you've,
0: you've seen the original Top Gun? I have, yes. Okay. Where do you stand on Tom Cruise?
1: Uh, I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. He's divisive.
1: He is divisive. Ever
0: since he jumped on Oprah's couch, I think.
1: I think that's what did it for me, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I, was,
0: I was young when that happened, and I still, <laughs> I still remember it quite vividly. Um, but... Uh, The reason I ask is because there was a really great article in uh, ESPN magazine uh, by uh, Ryan Hawkins Smith that the premise was, is Tom Cruise good at running? And uh, it went through his filmography and apparently he has sprinted in 44 of his 52 movies up to this point. Um, And yeah, the article brings in uh, Carol Smith Gilbert, who's a four-time NCAA champion coach, and now uh, leads the program, men's and women's program at uh, at Georgia in their um, track and field, and has her go through a bunch of different movies and kind of critique <laughs> Tom Cruise's like running form, offer a conclusion at the end of whether or not Tom Cruise is a good runner and uh she says that he is a good runner and couches it with uh saying that for hollywood um yeah it was a ridiculous article but also like That's quite hilarious.
1: funny Maybe yeah. we should um, bring him over to the ultra marathon world. Maybe he'd be a good runner, then, well, and not, not just for Hollywood.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I think like this this article made the case that he'd be a great eight hundred meter runner. Oh, interesting. And that <laughs> uh, it, under proper coaching, he, he could get his hundred meter dash time down to like eleven and a half seconds, which is <laughs> like insanely fast.
1: That's pretty fast.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but, that's a great statistic though. for he's running forty four of his fifty two movies. That's um. I wonder if that's his choice. Like maybe. He he wants to run in these movies.
0: <laughs> well yeah I mean he does all of his own stunts uh-huh. um, and uh, he's definitely like a pretty trim guy. I think he gets uh-huh. <laughs> he gets uh, yeah some criticism for wearing those uh, those platform shoes to kind of make up <laughs> for his his lack of height. So maybe we put him in some some alpha flies or some hokas. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Give
1: yeah. him some good stack height.
0: <laughs> yeah exactly. Oh man. Cool. All right. Well, I think that we covered pretty much uh, pretty much all the good stuff, including Tom Cruise.
1: Yeah, that's, um, all, that's all we needed to cover.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, why don't we uh, put a pin in things and maybe circle back in a month or two?
1: That sounds great.
0: Yeah, I want to hear about how Western States goes for you, because I know I'm getting a uh, a firsthand look into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Um, hopefully we have good things to talk about the next time yeah. we chat.
0: Cool. Cool. All right. Thanks, Leah.
1: Yeah, of course. Have a good one.
0: That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Leah for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.